Let's take our scriptures now when we turn to uh, 1 John chapter 2. We'll read part of that uh, chapter, verses 1 to 17. If you're using a pew Bible, you should find this on page 1054. That's 1 John 2, verses 1 through to 17. Let's hear the word of God. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Now by this we know uh, that we know him, if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him, and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in him. He who says he abides in him ought himself also to walk, just as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, And there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I write to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write to you, fathers, because you've known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write to you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the wicked one. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. Amen. And thanks be to God for his word. Uh, Well, in recent weeks, we have considered uh, the teaching of 1 John chapter 1, uh, we have noted in, in last Sunday and, and such that uh, the apostle is eager to let us know uh, that God is light. In him there is no darkness, as he says in the gospel, and we can have fellowship with, we can abide with, we can be in a relationship with God. Through Christ Jesus, the light of the world. You may recall last uh, Sunday, 
I directed your attention to uh, chapter 1, verse 5. That's the message that John gives us, that God is light. And I said that from that uh, came uh, three inevitable statements about our relationship with uh, the Lord God. Uh, We couldn't be in relationship with God who is light and walk in darkness. Uh, That was the first. We must walk in the light. Uh, We can't be in fellowship with God who is light uh, and claim to have put sin behind us. uh, Because uh, that would make us a liar. Rather, we should confess sin. And then that third consequence, verse 10, just a negative by itself. If we say we've always been free from sin, then it's not us who's being made a liar. We're alleging God's a liar. Those were uh, the three consequences, three inevitable uh, results, you could say, positive and negative, of being in relationship with Christ Jesus, light of the world. Now in chapter 2, John presents to us uh, in verses 1 and 2. That's all I want to look at tonight. The first two verses. John presents to us the gospel. If I asked you to sum up the gospel in one or two sentences, you might straight away think, okay, how could I communicate this to somebody who doesn't know Jesus? After all, If they did know Jesus, why would I tell them the gospel in one or two sentences? And straight away, we uh, endeavor uh, to come up with some statement of the gospel that is succinct, that is straightforward, that focuses on the need of all men and women as sinners and God's provision in sending his son to die for sinners. That's the gospel, isn't it? Christ died for the ungodly. Now, the gospel can also be stated in a far fuller, far richer, far more detailed manner. And that's what John is doing here. You might remember, I, uh, I, I pointed you to verses at the end of John's gospel, which told us why he wrote the gospel. Uh, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life in his name. Conversion, you could say. The epistle, though I showed you, uh, was written to those who already believe. That we might know that we know Christ Jesus and persevere. And for that reason, here in the opening verses of chapter 2, John's gospel statement is more involved. It causes us who have professed faith in Christ to really ask ourselves... What does it mean to say, Jesus is saviour and I'm the sinner? John explores here uh, the work of Christ Jesus in forgiving us. uh, Using three key descriptions. If you look at chapter 2, you see the apostle starts in that friendly way of as a, a father or grandfather in the spiritual community. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. A better translation maybe may not continue in sin, okay? But we all sin, don't we? We know that. John knows that. So he continues. And if anyone sins, 
Then we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Some translations might say the righteous one, that's fine. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. There's three descriptions of Christ Jesus that John gives us there that I want to focus on. Advocate with the Father, the righteous, or the righteous one, and propitiation for our sins. And and I will fourthly add brief, brief comments about John's description uh, that Christ is propitiation for not only for our sins, but for the whole world. So who is the Lord Jesus that John wants believers to know and know better? Well, he's advocate, he's righteous, and propitiation. Um, the reality of the Christian faith is that you can't grow spiritually and still be eating and drinking baby food. Part of that means we have to use precise language that isn't natural to us. It's the same in any discipline of life. Uh, If you had to go to Yale New Haven Hospital and tell the doctor what was wrong with you, the doctor would want to hear a specific description of your ailment. And, And you wouldn't want the doctor to say, oh, um, so-and-so's got a bad stomach, give them the blue medicine. It's stupid. No, not that colour blue, the other blue medicine. We need precise language. And so, in our growth in grace, we have to use vocabulary like advocate, righteous one, propitiation. So, briefly, let's just consider uh, Christ in, in these three titles or descriptions. He's the advocate. We read that, uh, we we read back in the preceding uh, chapter there, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Immediately we think of uh, God's faithfulness and justice in taking Christ as the punishment for our sins and, and forgiving us in Christ Jesus. And that's one of the key promises of the new covenant of the gospel. And and, and we we lay hold of that. Uh, But also, Christ, having died once 2,000 years ago and risen, he continues now to speak for his people in heaven. He is the uh, advocate for all believers. You could say he's the attorney the spokesperson, the representative. He speaks to the Father on our behalf. He doesn't uh, speak against the Father. It's not as if the Father wants to condemn us and Christ has to persuade him otherwise. Um, Christ, as our spokesperson or defender in heaven, speaks against the evil one, speaks against sin. Christ speaks to the Father against all the accusations that evil would want to throw at us. And and the Apostle Paul sums this up in in Romans. Um, Who is to condemn us? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who 
is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us. Uh, You might think of Christ's intercession as prayer only. It is prayer, but it's also his being our advocate, speaking for us. That's the first thing John tells us about Christ. And if you can, cast your minds back to our studies of the book of Revelation. Um, Do you recall how, for so many of those chapters, Christ was presented there? It was Christ uh, who opened the seven seals and broke them, and judgment came across the earth. It was Christ who instructed the seven angels to blast the trumpets, and more judgment came forth. And, And metaphorically, who put the bowls in the hands of the seven angels that they might be cast. It's Christ the Lord and judge of all. But Christ is also the advocate to those who trust in him. That's a gospel message. We can define the gospel narrowly as Christ died for sins 2,000 years ago. But in a broader sense, this is gospel truth. If you turn to the Lord Jesus and ask that he will forgive you, then he is your spokesperson in heaven. You have an advocate with the Father. Why? Because, dear believer, Christ loves you, and that's the beginning and the end of everything. Now, much more could be said of that, but let's move on. Christ, we're told, is our advocate with the Father, the righteous, or the righteous one. Now, again, uh, think of this in a, a very functional way to begin with. Why is it Christ can stand before the throne, even sit on the throne, and be our advocate? Well, because he's righteous. Christ is the only one who's exclusively characterized by uprightness, by perfect morality. He's completely right. Um, He is the one who in and of himself is justified, and everything he has done, will do, is justifiable because it is without sin. It's it's 100% ethical and virtuous. And that gives him something I would call standing. Let me explain what I mean there. Um, How many of you could walk into um, either of the the, uh, houses of um, uh, the US Congress in in, in, um, Mental Blank? Washington, D.C., sorry. Uh, How many of you could walk in to the House of Representatives or the Senate and address the Assembly, present motions? Or uh, could I go to the British Houses of Parliament, uh, the Commons or the Lords, and and stand there and and, and, and engage and act and work? No, of course I couldn't. Could you go to the most junior state law court in Connecticut and have voice or even the Supreme Court the Federal Supreme Court in DC no you couldn't I couldn't we don't have standing 
What would it take to have standing in those places? Well, a whole load of academic training, recognition, appointment, either by election from the people or uh, by a presidential or governor decree or whatever. And to gain that, it would take experience, integrity, and so on, wouldn't it? Go back to Revelation chapter 5 this time. Who is the only person who had standing in the court of heaven? Do you remember the uh, beginning of chapter 5? There the scroll was in, 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 in um, the hand of the one who sits on the throne and John wept because nobody was worthy to come forward and take the scroll. Nobody had the standing to engage with the father until the lamb who had been slain entered. And he was worthy to take the scroll, open it, and, and pronounce and outwork all, the, all God's plans written on that scroll within and without. Christ is the righteous one. That's my point. I'm trying to demonstrate it in a practical way. Um, Christ can be our advocate because of his, his inherent perfection of character. His sinlessness. You might recall uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1.30. Brother Spencer Melvin was fond of quoting it. Uh, there we read that Christ is the righteousness of God, the wisdom of God, the sanctification of God. And, and when we think of Christ as righteousness, we don't just think of him in his perfection, do we? Uh, Paul and, and Isaiah talk about the righteousness of God in our salvation. It was Christ's righteousness that's credited to us. Christ is the righteous one. Therefore, he's able to be our advocate. John goes on then in verse 2 of chapter 2. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Um, almost a side point. Why does John say he himself is the propitiation? Why not just say he's the propitiation for our sins? Well, because in Old Testament Judaism, the priest making the sacrifice was not the propitiation. I'll explain that in a moment. He was the propitiator. Christ is both the propitiator and the propitiation. Hence the emphasis, he himself. And what does John mean when he says propitiation? Well, challenging. Uh, some of you may be using different English versions of the Bible, other than that which I'm reading from in the Pew Bible. Uh, you might have in verse 2, he himself is the expiation for our sins. And others of you may have, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, this isn't one of those parts of the Bible where different ancient manuscripts say slightly different things and some English translations go with one bunch of manuscripts, expiation, while others go with different translation, propitiation. That's not it at all. That's not why we've got different translations. 
The differences in our translations are not because of translators. It's interpretation and interpreters. The word that John used is the same in the manuscripts that we have. It's a word that's not common in the New Testament. It's used in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, I believe. It's used in Romans 3. It's from a family of words. It can be a noun, a verb, and so on. And and you'll find in the Old Testament a family of words there that reflect it. Some people, um, historically it was those more liberal didn't want to find God in Scripture who was offended at sin. Uh, they'd recognize sin, but and they'd want God to deal with sin, but God is love, so God couldn't be offended at sin. And that would determine how they translated uh, these, this family of words in the Hebrew, this family of words in the New Testament Greek that we see there. In short, expiation, which some translations may say, that refers uh, more to sin and us. Expiation is is a genuine part of, of forgiveness and salvation, and it is a precise word used to describe uh, the gracious mercy of God where a substitute sheds blood. And that bloodshed covers our sins. Okay? It's covering our sins. Um, In the Old Testament, God tells us at the Day of Atonement, uh, half the blood of the sacrifice animals was sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant, you might remember. The lid of that Ark, uh, in most of our Bibles, is called the mercy seat. The actual word used is from this family of words to describe propitiation or expiation. As the blood covered the mercy seat, so you could say it it covered the people from the accusation of what was in the, the Ark of the Covenant. And do you remember what was in there? The law of God. Christ Jesus dies... And through his shed blood, he does cover the sins of his people. That is what we call expiation. Some Bibles have John, uh, 1 John 2, 2 translated that way. But others, such as our our pew Bibles, propitiation. And, And this is not so much to do with us and our sin and covering it. It's more to do with our sin and God. God is offended by sin. It angers him. It's an infinite offence to him because it's an attack on his infinite being. And this technical word that we might not be familiar with and want to use, propitiation, talks about resolving the problem that sin is to God, removing the offence that it is to God. Again, by a substitute, life is sacrificed, blood is shed, and God sees that the sin is justly punished. And precisely because he is the faithful, 
and just one that we read of uh, in chapter 1, verse 9, he is not offended by sin any longer. So Jesus does exactly that. Jesus is the propitiation, the sacrifice that appeases God's anger. He's also the priest bringing that propitiatory sacrifice. Now, what we have then uh, is John saying, I don't want you to continue in sin. But when you do sin, remember, you have an advocate, the righteous one, who through his death has paid for the offense, has has removed that offense to God of your sin. And, and, And briefly, John isn't trying to persuade us that the Lord God in heaven is like some fake Greek deity. Oh, you've annoyed me, I'm going to punish you, capricious, malevolent. That was Satan's lie in the Garden of Eden. God isn't trying to say um, uh, that God is angry with us until Jesus persuades him otherwise by the sacrifice. Uh, What we are are reading here um, is, is that the Father in his love uh, for those he's given to the Son provides a way that lovingly and justly and righteously his righteous anger against sin might be addressed. God is a God of infinite love. He doesn't kind of show mercy at the expense of his justice. That's not the... God at all by propitiation he has that way that he in love can show mercy justly by dealing with the offense of sin and that's exactly what Christ did at Calvary the resurrection proves that the father knew the full penalty of sin had been paid. Otherwise Christ couldn't have risen from the dead. Christ went to the cross because the Father loves us in order that the offense of sin might be removed. And his resurrection on the third day is the proof that the Father was well pleased with that sacrifice. And that's the wonderful at the depth of the, the, the gospel here in chapter 2. We do sin. Like John, we would not want to continue in it. We want to repent of it. And John is saying, be encouraged, be comforted. Christ is your advocate. Christ himself is righteous. Christ is that appeasing sacrifice for your sin. John 3.16 is the gospel in a nutshell. But it isn't the gospel explained in its fullness. Many other passages, and this being one of them, do that. We can be comforted and encouraged, confident in our salvation because of Christ Jesus. John then adds uh, that 
Christ is this sacrifice, not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And and briefly here, um, some Arminians will tell us that this verse teaches Christ died for everyone, and it's up to individuals to believe in him. Um, They'll claim Christ died for those who don't believe. He died for those who do believe, they will claim. So in some sense, the Lord Jesus died for the virtuous old lady down the road who loves everybody and does good, but refuses to believe in Jesus. And Christ died for Adolf Hitler as well. That's not at all what John is saying. John says the whole world here, not to include the unbelievers, uh, the reprobate as we would call them, uh, but rather to make plain that Christ's forgiveness is completely effective, not just for his community, not just for ethnic Jews, but for people all over the whole world who do believe. John is telling us here the international scope of Christ's grace and mercy is complete. It's global. Christ saves people of every nation, every tongue. And that's not because people in every nation, every tongue, have wonderful, rock-solid faith and have put sin behind them. It's because we in our weakness, we in our faltering, have Christ our advocate, Christ the righteous one, Christ the propitiation for our sins. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for Lord Jesus and for the perfection of your plan of salvation. We ask that you would draw us closer to our Saviour, that we would genuinely sin against you less and less as days and weeks and months and years go by. Uh, We ask this, Lord, for your glory's sake and for our spiritual growth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.